Welcome to the June 2011 Respiratory Care Podcast. We are pleased to bring you another full issue this month. So Sarah, let's get started. Our first paper is Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy End-Stage Respiratory Muscle Failure, Non-Invasive Ventilation Prolonged Survival by Bach and Martinez. The objective of this study was to describe survival outcomes with non-invasive ventilation for full ventilatory support and a mechanically assisted cough and oximetry protocol in a series of patients with Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy. The authors monitored end-tidal PCO2, SpO2, vital capacity, maximum insufflation capacity, and cough peak flow. Nocturnal NIV was initiated for symptomatic hypoventilation. An oximeter and mechanically assisted cough device were prescribed when the patient's maximum assisted cough peak flow fell below 300 liters per minute. Patients used up to continuous NIV and mechanically assisted cough to return SpO2 to greater than or equal to 95% during intercurrent respiratory infections or as otherwise needed. The authors recorded respiratory and cardiac hospitalizations and mortality and quantified survival by duration of NIV dependence. With advancing Duchenne muscular dystrophy, 101 nocturnal only NIV users extended their NIV use throughout the daytime hours and required it continuously for an average of 7.4 years to an average of 30.1 years of age with 56 patients still alive. 26 of the 101 became continuously dependent without requiring hospitalization. Eight tracheotomized users were decannulated to NIV. 31 consecutive unweanable intubated patients were extubated to NIV plus mechanically assisted cough. Of the 67 deaths, 52% were probably cardiac, 21% were probably respiratory, and 27% were of unknown or other etiology. The authors concluded that continuous NIV, along with mechanically assisted cough and oximetry as needed, can prolong life and obviate tracheotomy in patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Unweanable patients can be decannulated and extubated to NIV plus mechanically assisted cough. Almost all patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy who do not use ventilatory support die at a young age. Bach and Martinez described their protocol for this patient population. NIV along with mechanically assisted cough and oximetry prolonged life and avoided tracheostomy in patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. As Boitano and Bendit point out in their editorial, the challenge to the respiratory care community at large is how to implement programs similar to this and achieve similar results. Bench tests of simple handy ventilators for pandemics Performance, Autonomy, and Ergonomy is by Lair and Ra. The objective of this study was to compare simple, lightweight, and handy ventilators that could be used in the initial care of patients with respiratory distress. The authors evaluated four volume-cycled ventilators and two pressure-cycled ventilators. They studied the general physical characteristics, sonometry, gas consumption, 
technical performance, ergonomy, and user-friendliness. The authors assessed performance of FIO2 at 0.5 and 1, set compliance of 30, 70, and 120 milliliters per centimeter water, and set resistance of 5, 10, and 20 centimeters of water per milliliter per second. To study user friendliness and ergonomy, they conducted, in randomized order, seven or eight objective quantitative tests and two subjective tests. Compliance and resistance strongly affected tidal volume with the pressure cycle ventilators, whereas the volume cycled ventilators provided a consistent tidal volume in the face of changing test lung characteristics. The authors expressed concern that the pressure cycled ventilators did not provide a consistent tidal volume, and under certain conditions the volume delivered would be unsafe, either too large or too small. Most of the volume-cycled ventilators proved to be technically efficient and reliable. Their reliability, portability, and ease of use could make them valuable in natural disasters and mass casualty events. Numerous ventilators are available that can be used in a disaster setting, but few evaluations of these have been performed. Lair and Waugh compared simple ventilators that could be used in the initial care of patients with respiratory distress. An important observation is that the pressure-cycled ventilators did not provide a consistent tidal volume, and under certain conditions, the volume delivered is unsafe. But most of the volume-cycled ventilators proved to be technically efficient and reliable. As Branson points out in his editorial, not all ventilators that can be used in a disaster are the same. In fact, the pressure cycle devices in this study are actually automatic resuscitators and not ventilators per se. Next, we have the paper, Randomized Control Trial of a Breath-Actuated Nebulizer in Pediatric Asthma Patients in the Emergency Department by Sabato and colleagues. These authors conducted a randomized study of one-time albuterol treatment with the Aero Eclipse breath-actuated nebulizer versus standard therapy in pediatric asthma patients in the emergency department. Eligible patients were those admitted to the emergency department less than 18 years of age who presented with asthma or wheezing. They assessed all the patients with a clinical asthma scoring system and peak flow measurement if possible. The patients were stratified by clinical asthma score and weight, and then randomized to receive their initial albuterol treatment in the emergency department via either Aero Eclipse or standard therapy. The authors recorded time in the emergency department, change in clinical asthma score, need for additional bronchodilator treatments, need for admission, patient response, ability to actuate the Aero Eclipse, and adverse effects. They enrolled 149 patients between October 14, 2004 and November 11, 2005, and randomized 84 patients to the Aero Eclipse and 65 to standard therapy. The cohort's average age was 5.5 years. Time in the emergency department was not different, but the Aero Eclipse group had a significantly greater improvement in clinical asthma score and respiratory rate, and significantly lower admission rate. There was no difference in adverse effects. 
The authors concluded that, although Aero Eclipse did not reduce time in the emergency department, it significantly improved clinical asthma score, decreased admissions, and decreased respiratory rate. The paper by Sabato et al. is particularly important because there have previously been no randomized trials of a breath-actuated nebulizer versus continuous nebulization and or a small-volume constant-output nebulizer in pediatric patients with asthma. Although the breath-actuated nebulizer did not reduce the time in the emergency department, it significantly improved clinical asthma score, decreased admissions from the emergency department, and decreased respiratory rate. In their editorial, Ari and Fink explore several important questions that arise from this study. Nebulized hypertonic saline via positive expiratory pressure versus via jet nebulizer in patients with severe cystic fibrosis is by O'Connell et al. In four consecutive adult CF patients who were intolerant of hypertonic saline via jet nebulizer, the authors administered 6% hypertonic saline via a PEP nebulizer. They measured the number of days the patient required intravenous antibiotics from enrollment to study end, compared to an equal period before PEP, and the mean time between the patient's three most recent infective pulmonary exacerbation episodes before PEP to their next exacerbation after PEP. Patients also completed a Likert scale adverse effects questionnaire on hypertonic saline via PEP versus jet nebulizer. The four patients had severe CF pulmonary disease and all fully tolerated hypertonic saline via PEP for 77, 92, 128, and 137 days respectively until the study end date. There were fewer days of antibiotics in three of the four patients from 45 to 20 days, 66 to 14 days, and 28 to 0 days. The other patient had 63 days of antibiotics both during PEP and the jet nebulizer periods. There was a mean 3.6-fold longer time to the next infective pulmonary exacerbation during the PEP period. Adverse effects were less with PEP. The authors concluded that hypertonic saline via PEP nebulizer benefits CF patients who do not tolerate hypertonic saline via jet nebulizer. Although inhaled hypertonic saline is an effective therapy for patients with cystic fibrosis, many are intolerant of it. Nebulizers combined with PEP splint open airways and may offer a more controlled rate of nebulization. O'Connell et al. found that hypertonic saline via PEP nebulizer benefits patients with cystic fibrosis who do not tolerate hypertonic saline via jet nebulizer. As O'Malley points out in her editorial, perhaps combining these therapies will boost adherence in addition to providing benefit. Because of the very small sample size, however, additional study will be necessary before this combination of therapies can be widely adopted. Next, we have the paper by Demetriadis and colleagues. Test-retest reliability of maximum mouth pressure measurements with the micro-RPM flow meter in healthy volunteers. 
The objective of this study was to assess the test-retest reliability of the micro-RPM portable manometer's measurements of maximum inspiratory pressure and maximum expiratory pressure in the sitting and standing positions. The number of expiratory maneuvers needed with a micro-RPM for reliability in MIP and MEP measurement and the micro-RPM's test-retest reliability in other respiratory function indices, such as the maximum rate of pressure development, the time constant of relaxation, and the maximum relaxation rate. The authors recruited 15 healthy volunteers. They assessed respiratory muscle strength on three separate occasions, each a week apart. The micro-RPM reliably measured maximum inspiratory and expiratory pressures in both the sitting and standing positions. The reliability of other indices ranged from excellent to insufficient. The authors concluded that the micro-RPM reliably measures maximum inspiratory and expiratory pressures, but that other indices that it measures should be considered with caution. Assessment of the respiratory muscle's ability to generate force is important for recognizing respiratory muscle weakness. This study assessed the reliability of the measurements of maximum inspiratory pressure and maximum expiratory pressure with the micro-RPM portable manometer. They also evaluated the performance of the micro-RPM in the measurement of other respiratory function indices. Although the micro-RPM reliably measured maximum inspiratory and expiratory pressures, the additional measurements should be considered with caution. Moreover, the clinical relevance of these additional indices is unclear. Benefits of Pulmonary Rehabilitation in Idiopathic Pulmonary Fibrosis is by Swigris and colleagues. Information on the benefits of pulmonary rehabilitation in patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is growing, but effects of pulmonary rehabilitation on certain important outcomes is lacking. The authors conducted a pilot study of pulmonary rehabilitation in IPF and analyzed changes in functional capacity, fatigue, anxiety, depression, sleep, and health status from baseline to after completion of a standard six-week PR program. Six-minute walk distance improved a mean of 202 from baseline. Fatigue severity scale score also improved significantly, declining an average 1.5 points from baseline. There were trends toward improvement in anxiety, depression, and health status. The authors concluded that pulmonary rehabilitation improves functional capacity and fatigue in patients with IPF. Information on the benefits of pulmonary rehabilitation in patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is growing. However, as these authors correctly point out, its effects on important outcomes are lacking. Although the sample size was small, Swigris et al. were able to conclude that pulmonary rehabilitation improves functional capacity and fatigue in patients with IPF. Next is the paper, Survival from Severe Pandemic H1N1 in Urban and Rural Turkey, a case series by Karakli et al. The objective of this study was to clarify the clinical and demographic characteristics of patients who needed intensive care. The authors conducted a prospective cohort study from November 2009 to February 2010 of demographic characteristics, clinical course, management strategies, 28-day mortality, and stay in the ICU. 
During the study period, in their ICU, the authors followed 18 patients with H1N1. The median age was 39 years, the median Apache 2 score was 16, and half of them lived in rural areas. All 18 patients had ALI or ARDS. The most common risk factors for severe H1N1 infection were obesity, COPD, and pregnancy. 72% needed mechanical ventilation at ICU admission. Mortality was 50% at day 28. Significantly more survivors were urban dwellers than rural. There were also significant differences between survivors and non-survivors in success of non-invasive ventilation, time to confirmation of the H1N1 virus after ICU admission, creatine, lactate dehydrogenase, pH, PaCO2, and PaO2 to FiO2 ratio. The authors concluded that the most common clinical presentation was ALI or ARDS in H1N1 patients who needed intensive care. Living in rural areas may have affected those patients' access to advanced ICU facilities and early ventilatory support. Failure of non-invasive ventilation, late diagnosis, late antiviral therapy, high Apache 2 score, and living in a rural area were associated with mortality. Pandemic H1N1 Influenza A was a serious health problem around the world during the winter of 2009 to 2010. Kiraklia et al. report the survival from severe pandemic H1N1 in urban and rural Turkey. It is interesting that they found that living in a rural area was associated with mortality. Perhaps living in a rural area affected patients' access to advanced ICU facilities and early ventilatory support. It is also interesting to note that failure of non-invasive ventilation was associated with mortality. Cardiac response and N-terminal pro-brain natriuretic peptide kinetics during exercise in patients with COPD is by Wong et al. The objective of this study was to determine whether cardiac dysfunction adds to the mechanism of dyspnea caused primarily by impaired lung function in patients with mild to moderate COPD. In 19 COPD patients and 10 healthy control subjects, the authors measured physiologic variables and collected venous blood samples before and during incremental and constant work rate exercise, and measured NT-proBNP. Peak oxygen uptake and constant work exercise time were significantly lower in the COPD group than in the control group. Between the groups, there were no significant differences in anaerobic threshold, oxygen pulse, or heart rate reserve. Both at rest and during constant work exercise, NT-proBNP, was not significantly higher in the COPD group than the control group. In the COPD patients, there was no significant correlation between constant work exercise time and NT-proBNP at rest or during exercise. The authors concluded that heart failure did not contribute to exercise intolerance in patients with mild to moderate COPD. Dyspnea on exertion can be associated with COPD or heart failure or both. NT-proBNP is a marker of cardiac dysfunction and exercise testing can identify subtle heart abnormalities. 
Wang et al. investigated the cardiac response and NT-pro-BNP kinetics during exercise in patients with COPD. For the patients in this study, heart failure did not contribute to exercise intolerance in patients with mild to moderate COPD. Systemic inflammation and its response to treatment in patients with asthma is by Gerdhar and colleagues. The objective of this study was to measure systemic inflammation in asthma patients and to assess the effect of treatment on systemic inflammation. In 30 newly diagnosed non-randomized adult asthma patients, the authors measured systemic inflammation markers before and after a six-week standard treatment with inhaled steroids and inhaled beta agonist. The comparison group comprised 20 healthy control subjects. All the subjects were non-smokers. The measured systemic inflammation markers were higher in the patients with asthma. In the asthma patients, high-sensitivity C-reactive protein negatively correlated with the percent of predicted FEV1, percent of predicted FVC, and FEV1 to FVC ratio. Total leukocyte count negatively correlated with the percent of predicted FEV1 and percent of predicted FEV1 to FVC ratio. Body mass index positively correlated with high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Multiple linear regression showed significant correlation of high sensitivity C-reactive protein with age, body mass index, family size, and weight. The systemic inflammation markers decreased significantly after six weeks of treatment. The authors concluded that inhaled steroids plus inhaled beta agonist significantly reduced systemic inflammation in asthma patients. Gerthar et al. measured systemic inflammation in 30 adult patients with asthma and assessed the effect of treatment on systemic inflammation. Not surprisingly, they found that inhaled steroids plus inhaled beta-2 agonists significantly reduced systemic inflammation in patients with asthma. Next, we have the paper, Crackle, Pitch, and Rate Do Not Vary Significantly During a Single Automated Auscultation Session in Patients with Pneumonia, Congestive Heart Failure, or Interstitial Pulmonary Fibrosis by Vitschedsky et al. The objective of this study was to determine the variability of crackle pitch and crackle rate during a single automated auscultation session with a computerized 16-channel lung sound analyzer. 49 patients with pneumonia, 52 with congestive heart failure, and 18 with interstitial pulmonary fibrosis performed breathing maneuvers in the following sequence. Normal breathing, deep breathing, cough several times, deep breathing, vital capacity maneuver, and deep breathing. From the auscultation recordings, the authors measured the crackle pitch and crackle rate. Crackle pitch variability, expressed as a percentage of the average crackle pitch, was small in all patients and in all maneuvers. Crackle rate variability was also small. Compared to the first deep breathing maneuver, the average crackle pitch did not significantly change following coughing, the vital capacity maneuver, or during quiet breathing. Similarly, the average crackle rate did not change significantly following coughing or the vital capacity maneuver. However, during normal breathing, the crackle rate was significantly lower in patients with pneumonia and significantly higher in the patients with IPF than it was during deep breathing. 
In patients with CHF, the average crackle rate during normal breathing was not significantly different from that during the first deep breathing maneuver. The authors note that crackle pitch and rate were surprisingly stable in all three conditions. Neither crackle pitch nor crackle rate changed significantly from breath to breath or from one deep breathing maneuver to another, even when the maneuvers were separated by cough or the vital capacity maneuver. The observation that crackle rate is a reproducible measurement during one automated auscultation session suggests that crackle rate can be used to follow the course of cardiopulmonary illnesses such as pneumonia, IPF, and CHF. Vyshevsky et al. evaluated the variability of crackle pitch and crackle rate during a single automated auscultation session with a computerized 16-channel lung sound analyzer. Neither crackle pitch nor crackle rate changed significantly from breath to breath or from one deep breathing maneuver to another. This suggests that crackle rate might be used to follow the course of cardiopulmonary illnesses such as those evaluated in this study. Pneumatic performance of the Boisignac CPAP system in healthy humans is by Selin and colleagues. The objective of this study was to evaluate the Boisignac CPAP system's ability to maintain stable inspiratory and expiratory pressure levels and evaluate perceived exertion when breathing with the Boisignac CPAP system. In 18 healthy volunteers, the authors recorded airway pressure and airway flow during 10-minute sessions at 5, 7.5, and 10 centimeters of water. The participants were blinded to the sequence of CPAP levels. Each session was ended with 10 forced breaths. The authors measured perceived exertion with a Borg category ratio 10 scale. When the participants breathed at 20% of vital capacity and a peak expiratory flow of 14% of FEV1, the maximum pressures difference between inspiration and expiration was 4 cm water at CPAP of 10 cm water. The changes in airway pressure were never large enough to reduce airway pressure below zero. During the forced breaths, the expiratory volume was 38 to 42 percent of vital capacity and peak expiratory flow was 49 to 56 percent of FEV1. As air flow increased, both the drop in inspiratory airway pressure and the increase in expiratory airway pressure increased. The authors concluded that the device's pneumatic performance is adequate during normal breathing with low air flow, but during forced breathing with high air flow, it did not maintain stable airway pressure, which could increase the work of breathing and cause respiratory fatigue. Thus, the Boisignac CPAP system might be less suitable for a patient breathing at a higher frequency. The Boisignac CPAP device is used to treat acute pulmonary edema, but data on airway pressure with its use are sparse. This is addressed by Salen et al. in this study. They found that the device's pneumatic performance is adequate with low airflow, but with high airflow, it did not maintain stable airway pressure. Thus, as they correctly conclude, the Bozignac CPAP system might be less suitable for a patient breathing at a higher frequency. Our final original research paper this month is 
Remifentanil improves breathing pattern and reduces inspiratory workload in tachypnic patients by Natalini and colleagues. The objective of this study was to determine whether Remifentanil improves breathing pattern or reduces inspiratory effort in patients with acute respiratory failure and tachypnea or rapid shallow breathing. They studied 14 patients who developed tachypnea and or rapid shallow breathing when the pressure support level was reduced. During pressure support ventilation, each patient received 30-minute infusions separated by 30 minutes of remifentanil and placebo. Measurements were obtained before commencing and before stopping each infusion and after three minutes of unassisted breathing. The main outcomes were rapid shallow breathing index and change in pressure time product. Remifentanil did not significantly affect tidal volume. During pressure support ventilation, remifentanil infusion reduced respiratory rate, pressure time product, and cardiovascular double product without modifying the sedation score. Mean PaCO2 showed a small and clinically negligible increase during remifentanil, but PaCO2 increased more in the hypercapnic patients than in the normocapnic patients. Remifentanil reduced the rapid shallow breathing index after three minutes of unassisted breathing. The authors concluded that remifentanil improved respiratory pattern and decreased inspiratory muscle effort in patients with tachypnea or rapid shallow breathing, but did not affect oxygenation or sedation. Though the acid-base balance did not show clinically relevant changes on average, it is not possible to exclude the possibility that remifentanil might prolong weaning in hypercapnic patients. Natalini et al. evaluated whether remifentanil improves breathing pattern or reduces inspiratory effort in patients with acute respiratory failure and tachypnea or rapid shallow breathing. They found that remifentanil improved respiratory pattern and decreased inspiratory muscle effort, but did not affect oxygenation or sedation. Though the acid-base balance did not show clinically relevant changes on average, the possibility that remifentanil might prolong weaning in hypercapnic patients cannot be excluded, and this deserves consideration in further research. We publish a review this month on technology for enhancing chest auscultation in clinical simulation and another on the use of inspiratory resistance to treat systemic hypotension. The case reports are an unusual presentation of bronchial rupture, conservative treatment of severe tracheal laceration after endotracheal intubation, a ruptured pulmonary hydatid cyst with anaphylactic shock and pneumothorax, and successful extracorporeal membrane oxygenation for respiratory failure in an infant with DeGeorge anomaly following thymus transplantation. The teaching cases are high-grade primary pulmonary B-cell lymphoma presenting as a necrotic mass and pulmonary vein stenosis mimicking massive pulmonary embolism after radiofrequency ablation for atrial fibrillation. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.